Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. I am your host, Catherine Lopez-Luker. No matter how much they did to try to remain in Dandelion Cottage, from trying to explain the situation to Mr. Downing, to even sending a frantic telegram to Mr. Black, the girls are forced to move out. But they did so as graciously as possible. However, it seems to be a law of the universe that sometimes, if people treat others poorly, bad things happen to them. Such is certainly the case with those awful Milligans. Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Dandelion Cottage by Carol Watson Rankin Chapter 16 Mabel Plans a Surprise The girls were indignant later when they discovered Mabel's apparent desertion. It was precisely like Mabel, they said, to shirk when there was anything unpleasant to be done. For once, however, they were wronging Mabel, poor, self-sacrificing Mabel, who, with fifty-five cents at her disposal, was planning a beautiful surprise for her unappreciative cottage mates. The girls might have known that nothing short of an ambitious project for saving the cottage from the Milligans would have kept the child away when so much was going on. For Mabel was at that very moment doing what for her was the hardest kind of work, all alone in her own room at home. She was laboriously composing a telegram. She had never sent a telegram, nor had she even read one. She could not consult her mother because Mrs. Bennet had inconsiderately gone downtown to do her marketing. Dr. Bennett, however, was a very busy man, and sometimes received a number of important messages in one day. Mabel felt that the occasion justified her studying several late specimens, which she resurrected from the waste paper basket under her father's desk. These, however, proved rather unsatisfactory models, since none of them seemed to exactly fit the existing emergency. Most of them, indeed, were in cipher. I suppose, said Mabel, nibbling her penholder thoughtfully. They make them short so they'll fit these little yellow sheets of paper. But there's lots more space they might use if they didn't leave such wide margins. I'll write small, so I can say all I want to, but dear me, I can't think of a thing to say. It took a long time, but the message was finished at last. With a deep sigh of satisfaction, Mabel folded it neatly and put it into an envelope, which she carefully sealed. Then, putting on her hat and taking the telegram with her, she ran to Betty's home and opened the door. <laughs> None of the four girls were required to ring each other's doorbells. And there, sure enough, was the letter waiting to be mailed to Mr. Black. Mabel, who had thought to bring a pencil, copied the address in her big vertical handwriting 
and without further ado, ran with it to her friend, the telegraph operator, whose office was just around the corner. All the distances in the town were short, and Mabel had frequently been sent to the place with messages written by her father, so she did not feel the need of asking permission. The clerk opened the envelope. Mabel considered this decidedly rude of him, and proceeded to read the message. It took him a long time. Then he looked from Mabel's flushed cheeks and eager eyes to the little collection of nickels and dimes she had placed on the counter. Mabel wondered why the young man chewed the ends of his sandy mustache so vigorously. Perhaps he was amused at something. She looked about the little office to see what it could be that pleased him so greatly. But there seemed to be nothing to excite mirth. She decided that he was either a very cheerful young man naturally, or else he was feeling joyful, because the clock said that it was nearly time for luncheon. "'It'll be all right, Miss Mabel,' he said at last. "'It's a pretty good fifty-five cents worth. But I guess Mr. Black won't object to that. I hope you'll always come to me when you have messages to send.' "'If you won't go and read em all,' said Mabel, at which her friend looked even more cheerful than he had before." Ten minutes later, Mabel, mumbling something about having had an errand to attend to, presented herself at the cottage. Beyond a few meekly received reproaches from Marjorie, no one said anything about the unexplained absence. Indeed, they were all too busy and too preoccupied to care. The greater grief of losing the cottage, having swallowed up all lesser concerns. At a less trying time, the girls would have discovered within ten minutes that Mabel was suffering from a suppressed secret. But everything was changed now. Although Mabel fairly bristled with importance and gave out sundry very broad hints, no one paid the slightest attention. Gradually, in the stress of packing, the matter of the telegram faded from Mabel's short memory. For preparing to move proved a most exciting operation and also a harrowing one. Every few moments somebody would say, Our last day! And then the other three would fall to weeping on anything that happened to come handy. Of course, the packing had stirred up considerable dust, and this, mingled with tears, added much to the forlornness of the cottagers' appearance when they went home at noon with their news. The parents and Auntie Jane said that it was a shame but all agreed that there was nothing to be done. All were sorry to have the little girls deprived of the cottage, for the mothers had certainly found it a relief to have their little daughter's leisure hours so safely and happily occupied. Mabel's mother was especially sorry. Never was moving more melancholy, nor house more forlorn when the moving, done after dark, with great caution, and mostly through the dining-room window, on the side of the house farthest from the Milligans, was finally accomplished. The Tucker boys had been only too delighted to help. By bedtime, the cottage was empty of everything but the curtains on the Milligan side of the house. An hour later, the tired girls were asleep, but under each pillow there was a handkerchief rolled in a tight, grimy little ball and soaked with tears. In the morning, the girls returned for a last look, and for the remaining curtains. 
Dandelion Cottage, stripped of its furniture and without its pictures, showed its age and all its infirmities. Great patches of plaster and wallpaper were missing, for the bright posters had covered a multitude of defects. The indignant Tucker boys had disobeyed Betty, and had removed not only the tin they had put on the leaking roof, but the steps they had built at the back door, the drain they had found it necessary to place under the kitchen sink, and the bricks with which they had propped the tottering chimneys. Before the day was over, the tenants, whom the Milligans had found for their own house, were clamoring to move in. So the Milligans took possession of the cottage late that afternoon, getting the key from Mr. Downing, into whose keeping the girls had silently delivered it that morning. To do Mr. Downing justice, nothing had ever hurt him quite as much as did the dignified silence of the three pale girls who waited for a moment in the doorway, while equally pallid Jean went quietly forward to lay the key on his desk. He realized suddenly that not one of them could have spoken a word without bursting into tears, and for the rest of the day he hated himself most heartily. Chapter 17 Several Surprises Take Effect Mr. Black opened the door of his hotel apartment in Washington one sultry noon in response to a vigorous, prolonged rapping from without. The bellboy handed him a telegram. When Mr. Black had read the long message, he smiled and frowned, but cheerfully paid the $3.41 additional charges that the messenger demanded. It was Mabel's message. The clerk had transmitted it faithfully, even to the two misspelled words that had proved too much for the excited little writer. If the receiving clerk had not considerately tucked in a few periods for the sake of clearness, there would have been no punctuation marks, because, as everybody knows, very few telegrams are punctuated. But Mabel, of course, had not taken that into consideration. It was quite the longest message and certainly the most amusing one that Mr. Black had ever received. It read, Dear Mr. Black, We are well but terribly unhappy, for the worst has happened. Can't you come to the rescue, as they say in books, for we are really in great trouble, because the Milligans, a very unpolite and untruthful family next door, want Dandelion Cottage for themselves, the pigs. And Mr. Downing says that we must move out at once and return the key our own darling key that you gave us. We are moving out now and crying so hard we can hardly write, I mean, myself. Is Mr. Downing the boss of the whole church? Can't you tell him we truly paid the rent for all the summer by digging dandelions? He does not believe us. We are too sad to write any more with love from your little friends, Jean, Marjorie, Betty, and I. P.S. How about your dinner party if we lose the cottage? Mr. Black read and reread the typewritten yellow sheet a great many times. Sometimes he frowned. Sometimes he chuckled. The postscript seemed to please him particularly, for whenever he reached that point, his deep-set eyes twinkled merrily. Presently, he propped the dispatch against the wall at the back of his table and sat down in front of it to write a reply. He wrote several messages, some long, some short, then he tore them all up, 
they seemed inadequate in comparison with Mabel's. That man Downing, he said, dropping the scraps into the waste paper basket. He means well, but he muddles every pie he puts his finger in. Probably if I wire him, he'll botch things even worse than ever. Dear me, it is too bad for those nice children to lose any part of their precious stay in that cottage. For, of course, they'll have to give it up when the cold weather comes. If I can wind my business up today, there isn't any good reason why I can't go straight through without stopping in Chicago. It's time I was home anyway. It's pretty warm here for a man that likes a cold climate. Meanwhile, things were happening in Mr. Black's own town. It was a dark, threatening day when the Milligans, delighted at the success of their efforts to dislodge its rightful tenants, hurriedly moved into Dandelion Cottage. But dark though it was, Mrs. Milligan soon began to find her new possession full of unsuspected blemishes. Now that the girl's artwork was taken down and the rugs were up, she discovered the badly broken plaster, the tattered condition of the wallpaper, the leaking drain, and the clumsily mended rat holes. She found, too, that she had made a grievous mistake in her calculations. She had supposed that the tiny pantry was a third bedroom, with its neat muslin curtains. It certainly looked like one when viewed from the outside, and crafty Lara, intensely desirous of seeing the enemy ousted from the cottage at any price, had not considered it necessary to enlighten her mother. "'My goodness!' exclaimed Mrs. Milligan, a thin woman with a shrewish countenance, now much streaked with dust. I thought you said there was a fine cellar under this house. It's barely three feet deep, and there's no stairs and no floor. It's full of old rubbish. I never was down there, admitted Lara, dropping a dishpan full of cooking utensils with a crash and hastily making for safe quarters behind a mountain of Milligan furniture. But I've often seen the trap door. It hasn't been opened for years. And where's the nice big closet you said opened off the bedroom? There isn't a decent closet in this house. I don't see what possessed you. It serves you right, said Mr. Milligan unsympathetically. You wouldn't wait for anything but had to rush right in. I told you you'd better take your time about it, but no. You know very well, James Milligan, snapped the irate lady, that the Knapps wouldn't have taken our house if they couldn't have had it at once. Well, I don't know, growled Mr. Milligan scowling crossly at the constantly growing heaps of incongruously mixed household goods. Where, the Sam Hill, are you going to put all that stuff? There isn't room for a cat to turn around, and the place ain't fit to live in anyway. Bad as things looked, even Mr. Milligan did not guess that first busy day how hopelessly out of repair the cottage really was. But he was soon to find out. The summer had been an unusually dry one, so dry that the girls had been obliged to carry many pails of water to their garden every evening. The moving day had been cloudy, out of sympathy, perhaps, for the little cottagers. That night it rained, the first long, steady downpour in weeks. This proved no gentle shower, but a fierce, robust, pelting flood 
seemingly a discriminating reign too, choosing carefully between the just and the unjust, for most of it fell upon the Milligans. With the sole exception of the dining room, every room in the house leaked like a sieve. The tired, disgusted Milligans, drenched in their beds, leaped hastily from their shower baths to look about by candlelight for shelter. Mr. Milligan spread a mattress, the driest side up, on the dining room floor, and the unfortunate family spent the rest of the night huddled in an uncomfortable heap in the one dry spot the house afforded. Very early the next morning, they sent post-haste for Mr. Downing. Mr. Downing, who hated to be disturbed before eight, arrived at ten o'clock, and, with an expert carpenter, made a thorough examination of the house, which the rain had certainly not improved. "'It'll take three hundred, possibly four hundred dollars,' said the carpenter, who had been making a great many figures in a worn little notebook, "'to make this place habitable.' It needs a new roof, new chimneys, new floors, a new foundation, new plumbing, new plaster, in short, just about everything except the four outside walls. Then there are no lights and no furnace, which, of course, would be extra. It's probably one of the oldest houses in town. What's it renting for? Ten dollars a month. It isn't worth it. Half that money would be a high price. Even if it were placed in good repair, it would be six years at least before you could expect to get the money expended on repairs back in rent. The only thing to do is to tear it down and build a larger and more modern house that will bring a better rent. For there's no money in a ten-dollar house on a lot of this size. The taxes eat all the profits. Well, said Mr. Downing, this house certainly looked far more comfortable when I saw it the other day than it does now. Those children must have had the defects very well concealed. They deceived me completely. They deceived us all, said Mrs. Milligan resentfully. Half our furniture is ruined. Look at that sofa. Mr. Downing looked. The drenched old gold plush sofa certainly looked very much like a half-drowned Jersey calf. Of course, continued Mrs. Milligan sharply. We expect to have our losses made good. Then we've had all our trouble for nothing, too. Of course we can't stay here. The place isn't fit for pigs. I suppose the best thing we can do is to move right back into our own house. Yes, said Mr. Milligan, overlooking the fact that Mrs. Milligan had inadvertently called her family pigs. It certainly looks like the best thing to do. I'll go and tell the Naps that they have to move out at once. We can't spend another night under this roof. The Naps, however, proved disobliging and flatly declined to move a second time. The Milligans had begged them to take the house off their hands, and they had signed a contract. Moreover, it was just the kind of house the Naps had long been looking for, and now that they were moved, more than half settled, and altogether satisfied with their part of the bargain, they politely but firmly announced their intention of staying where they were until the lease should expire. There was nothing the former tenants could do about it. They were homeless, and quite as helpless as the four little girls had been in similar circumstances. But they made a far greater fuss about it. By this they gained, however, nothing but the disapproval of 
everybody concerned. So, finally, the Milligans, disgusted with Dandelion Cottage, with Mr. Downing, and for once even a little bit with themselves, dejectedly hunted up a new home in a far less pleasant neighborhood, and moved out of Dandelion Cottage and, except for the memories they left behind, out of the story. Chapter 18 A Hurried Retreat The girls, of course, had been barred out while all these exciting latest events were taking place in their dear cottage. But Marjorie, who lived next door to it, had seen something of the Milligan's hasty exit and had guessed at part of the truth. Mrs. Knapp, who seemed like a pleasant, likable little woman, in spite of her unwillingness to accommodate her new landlord, unknowingly confirmed their suspicions when she told her new friend Mrs. Crane about it. For Mrs. Crane, in her turn, told the news to the four little housekeepers the next morning, as they sat homeless and forlorn on her doorstep. It was always Mrs. Crane to whom the dandelion cottagers turned whenever they were in need of consolation, and, as in this case, consolation was usually forthcoming. The girls, in their excitement at hearing the news about their late possession, did not notice that sympathetic Mrs. Crane looked tired and worried as she sat in the big red rocking chair on her front porch, peeling potatoes. Oh, squealed Mabel from the broad arm of Mrs. Crane's chair. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. <laughs> I can't help being a little bit glad, too, said fair-minded Jean. I suppose it wasn't very pleasant for the Milligans, but I guess they deserved all they got. They deserved a great deal more, said Marjorie resentfully. Think of those awful last days. If they'd have had much more, said Mrs. Crane, they'd have been drowned. Why, children, the place was just flooded. I'm ashamed to tell of it, said Betty, but I'm awfully afraid that our boys took off parts of the pieces of tin that they nailed on the roof last spring. I heard them doing something up there the night we moved but Bob only grinned when I asked him about it. Oh, good for the boys, cried Marjorie gleefully. I wouldn't be unladylike enough to set traps for the Milligans myself, but I can't help feeling glad that somebody else did. It was Bob's own tin, giggled delighted Mabel, almost tumbling into Mrs. Crane's potato pan in her joy. I guess he had a right to take it home if he wanted to. Anyway, said Jean from her perch on the porch railing, I'm glad they're gone. But it doesn't do us any good, sighed Betty, and the summer's just flying by. Yes, it does do us good, insisted Jean. We can stand having the cottage empty. We can pretend, you know, that it's an enchanted castle that can be opened only by a certain magic key that, that somebody's babies swallowed, shrieked Mabel, the matter of fact. Oh, mercy, no, Goosey, said Marjorie. She means a magic word that nobody can remember. That's it, said Jean. Of course, we couldn't even do that with the cottage full of Milligans. No, assented Marjorie. The most active imagination would refuse to activate. To what? gasped Mabel. To work, explained Marjorie. I should say so, agreed Mabel, again threatening the potatoes. It was just as much as I could do to come over here this morning to breathe the same air with that cottage, with those folks in it staring at me in the face. But now, 
After all, sighed Betty sorrowfully from the other arm of Mrs. Crane's big chair, having the Milligans out of the cottage doesn't make much difference, as long as we're out, too. Oh, I did love that little house so. I just hated to think of cold weather coming to drive us out. But I never dreamed of anything so dreadful as having to leave it right in this lovely warm weather. If Mr. Black had stayed in town, said Mabel feelingly, we'd be dusting that darling cottage this very minute. Mrs. Crane sniffed in the odd way she always did whenever Mr. Black's name was mentioned. This scornful sniff, accompanying Mrs. Crane's evident disapproval of their dearest friend, was the only thing that the girls disliked about Mrs. Crane. I know you'd like Mr. Black if you only knew him, said Betty earnestly. In some ways, you're a great deal like him. You look similarly, you see. Your eyebrows turn up at the same way at the outside corners. And you both like us. Mr. Black has a beautiful soul. Indeed, said Mrs. Crane. And haven't I a beautiful soul, too? Why, of course, said Betty, leaning down to rub her cheek against Mrs. Crane's. I meant both of you. We like you both just the same. Only it's different, explained Jean. Mr. Black doesn't need us, and sometimes you do. We like to do things for you. I'm glad of that, said Mrs. Crane, for I need you this very minute. But don't you be too sure about his not needing you as well. He must lead a pretty lonely life because it's years since his wife died. I never heard of anybody else liking her, but I guess he did. He's one of the faithful kind, maybe, for he's lived all alone in that great big house ever since. I guess it does him good to have you little girls for friends. What was his wife like? asked Mabel eagerly. Did you used to know her? No, indeed, said Mrs. Crane, again giving the objectionable sniff. That is not so very well. A little light-headed, useless thing. No more fit to keep house, but... But there, there. It doesn't make any difference now. And I've learned that it isn't the best housekeepers that get married easiest. If it was, I wouldn't be so worried now. Is there anything the matter? asked Jean, quick to note the distress in Mrs. Crane's voice. Yes, returned the good woman. There are two things the matter. Your poor foot? queried Betty, instantly all sympathy. No, the foot's all right. It's Mr. Barlow and my eyes. Mr. Barlow is going to be married to a young lady he's been writing to for a long time, and I'm going to lose him because he wants to keep house. It won't be easy to find another lodger for that little shabby old-fashioned room. I'm trying to make a new rag carpet for it, but I'm all at a standstill because I can't see to thread my needle. I declare I don't know what's going to become of me. When I grow up, said Betty, you shall live with me. But what am I to do while I'm waiting for you to grow up? Asked Mrs. Crane, smiling at Betty's protecting manner. Let us be your eyes, suggested Jean. Couldn't we thread, oh, about a million needles for you? Don't you think a million would last all day? I should think it might, said Mrs. Crane, somewhat comforted. I haven't quite a million. But if Marjorie will get my cushion and a spool of cotton, I'll be very glad to have you thread all I have. The girls worked in silence for fully five minutes. Then Mabel jabbed the solitary needle she had threaded into the sawdust cushion and said, 
Don't you suppose Mr. Downing might let us have the cottage now if we went to him? Nobody else seems to care about it. What do you think, Mrs. Crane? Why, my dear, I suppose it wouldn't do any harm to ask. You'd better see what your own people think about it, though. Let's go ask them now, cried impetuous Mabel, springing to her feet. Forgetting all about the needles, and without waiting to say goodbye to Mrs. Crane, the eager girl made a diagonal rush for the corner nearest her own home. The others remained long enough to thread all the needles. Then they, too, ran home with the news about the cottage and about Mrs. Crane. They were realizing for the first time that their good friend might become helpless long before they were ready to use her as a grandmother for their children. But they couldn't see just what was to be done about it. The idea of going to Mr. Downing, however, soon drove every other thought away, for the parents, and Auntie Jane too, advised them to ask. They even encouraged them. But when Jean and Betty, hopefully dressed in their Sunday best, and Marjorie and Mabel with their abundant locks elaborately curled besides, presented themselves in their request at Mr. Downing's house that evening. They were not at all encouraged by their reception. Mr. Downing, a man of moods, had just come off second best in an encounter with Mrs. Milligan, whom he had accidentally met on his way home to dinner. And at the moment the girls appeared, the cottage was just about the last subject that the badgered man cared to discuss. Before Jean had fairly stated her errand, the enraged Mr. Downing roared, No! so emphatically that his four alarmed visitors backed hurriedly off the Downing porch and fled as one girl. Mabel, to be sure, measured her length in the canna-bed near the gate, but she scrambled up, snorting with fright and indignation, and none of them paused again in their flight until Jean's door, which seemed the safest, had closed behind them. This is your host, Catherine Lopez-Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to Dandelion Cottage. I'd love to hear from you, so please send an email to me at kluker at marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.